My name is Jacob Parnell. I'm the preaching minister. We are in a sermon series right now called The Liturgy of the Ordinary. It's based on the book by the, the same title by Tish Harrison Warren. And it's, the purpose is to find spiritual practices in your everyday life. If you come to worship here at Tri-Valley on a Sunday morning, you will find spiritual practices like worship songs, communal prayer, gathering around and observing uh, the Lord's Supper. We're going to do that every week. But what about the rest of the week? What about the rest of our lives? Can we attach certain spiritual meaning to the things that we do every day, like making the bed or brushing our teeth? So that's what we've been talking about. That's We've been kind of working our way through a typical day. Last week we talked about getting into a fight with somebody that you live with, somebody that you're close to, and how that can remind us to be peacemakers and be reconcilers. And that's why we began our worship this morning with a call to reconciliation. This morning we're going to attach some spiritual meaning to something that for some of us may not be your favorite part of the day. I'll talk about that in just a moment. But as we begin, I want you to brainstorm with me. I want you to, in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to take 30 seconds and turn to somebody near you and see if you can come up with one or two examples of a job or a profession that has Christian ministry built into it. Think of a job, something that someone can get paid for or a career that you can have that automatically has Christian ministry involved in it. I'll give you an example. A preaching minister for a church. Uh, Definitely Christian ministry built into my job description and my daily uh, occupational rhythms, but I want you to think of several more. Take about 30, 40 seconds, turn to somebody next to you. This is a short answer section, so uh, ready, set, go. If you're joining us online, you can type your answers in the chat and interact with the online folks in that way. check and see if there's any great answers that I can share in real time. Boom. Wade and Sylvia Skinner are joining us online. We love you guys. Uh, And uh, one of them, or both of them, said... Christian greeting card writing. So if you are lucky enough to have the job where you're just thinking up Christian sentiments and writing greeting cards all day long, there's Christian ministry built right into that job description. That is a great example. Phil Weiss, who is both online and in the room, (laughs) said, uh, a Christian music artist. Yeah, if you're writing songs about the Lord, if you're going into the studio, probably in Nashville, and recording music, that's your job, that's a great gig. Arinda says, teacher at a Christian school. Sandra McGee, also dual citizenship online and in the room, uh, says, youth minister. Uh, Where were some other examples that you guys came up with? Anybody have one they want to share? A job where Christian ministry is automatic. Yeah. Theology professor. Missionaries. Yeah. Yen. The church secretary. Yeah. That good ministry. You even have an office for it. Side note, speaking of that, um, I sent out a call a few weeks ago for someone to come in and do the Christian ministry of shredding old documents. You might have seen the email. I was like, I don't want to do it, but somebody's got to do it. Uh, Sonia Oswald said, hey, I'll come down 
and I'll do it. And she shredded three big bags of stuff. So, Sonia, if you're joining us, we appreciate you. Bill, you had, a, you had an example. Yeah. Nursing, doctoring, you say psychologist. Yeah, absolutely. Social work. You're doing Christian ministry just as part of your job. Now, here's what I want. Oh, John, please. Being a good neighbor. You don't always get paid for that, but it's a good thing to be, to be doing. Absolutely, 100%. I want you to think now on the opposite end of this job list. What are some jobs or professions where it's harder to do Christian ministry? We're talking about specifically Christian ministry. Uh, what jobs or professions are not built into that, and maybe it's difficult to do? So again, 30 seconds, talk amongst yourselves, and then we'll see what kind of answers we come up with. I just overheard someone say scammer. <laughs> that is great. Yeah. I'm trying to share Jesus with people while I'm ripping off their bank accounts. Uh, yeah. That's not going to go great. Uh, Phil said, teacher in a public school. Is that for the first question or the second question? Second question. Okay. I could maybe apply to both, but yeah. Interesting. What else did you guys say? What's a job or a profession where it's harder to do Christian ministry? Police officer, construction, bartender. What was that, Dave? Professional Buddhist. Yeah, yeah. Probably not leaning hard into to Jesus' teachings if you're uh, teaching Buddhist, Buddhism and uh, practicing and all that. Yeah. Anything else come to mind? Fireman? Government. Sure, politicians. Yeah. This, okay, this exercise is less about coming up with the exact right answers and creating a, like a hierarchy of like which jobs are the most spiritual and which jobs are the least spiritual. It's just more about how we think about the question. You know, we do tend to say that some jobs are more suited for Christians than others. And we think of helping professions. We think of the, I mean, like, I've been a full-time Christian paid minister for almost 15 years, and there's definitely Christian ministry built into that. If I stop doing Christian ministry, you guys should stop paying me. But most people have jobs that are kind of somewhere in between. They're not scammers, they're not smut peddlers, and they're not Christian missionaries, and they're not full-time church staff people. But we're just, we're doing any job. And I could see some of you as I was asking this question. And John, you started to go there. Wade Skinner online was like, I think any job, you can do Christian, mission. You can do Christian ministry if you're doing it well and if you're doing it in the name of Jesus. That's kind of where we're going this morning. That's what I want us to be thinking about. The daily practice that our author, who's guiding us through the series, has mentioned that she hates having to do. One of her least favorite parts of the day, and it's connected to her job, 
It's, the, it's in your order of worship. You guys already know what it is. It's the title of this message. Take a look at your sheet and see if you can come up with it. Checking emails, right? Checking email. Does anybody just despise checking emails? Is, is anybody with her and saying, like, this is something I do and uh, I have to do it, but I'm constantly getting uh, junk mail. I've got these filters on. I, someone says, I sent you this email. Well, I didn't get the email. Well, I'm going to go check my spam filter and just all of this. It's one of those things that feels very monotonous. It's very uncreative. It doesn't feel like ministry. This is what Tish Harrison Warren says is, it's just something I don't like to do. It feels laborious. It feels like work. And it, like I want to do the work of the Lord. I want to do Christian ministry. I want to be a good neighbor. I want to be a good worker. But when I just have to go, <laughs> inbox zero, I got to get this thing balanced and distribute all this. It's just, she finds it very unspiritual. And like I said, we tend to kind of think of the tasks that we have to do. For you, it might not be checking email. But it may be something that's just as tedious, that's just as much of a have-to versus a want-to. And you're like, how could I possibly be formed spiritually by doing something as tedious as doing the dishes? Or we talked last week about people leaving their socks in the hallway, <laughs> picking up the socks and going, ah, these kids don't know where the hamper is. Think about what that is for you. And it might not be related to your job. A lot of folks in this room uh, are not working full-time anymore. But maybe there's tasks that you do. Maybe there are hobbies that you enjoy. Like, I like to cook. Cooking is great, but I hate doing dishes, and I hate wiping down the stovetop. Got to do it, but it's one of those things, ugh, why do I have to do this? You may enjoy crafting, but you don't enjoy cleaning up or having to make a run to, to Michael's to buy more supplies or, or whatever it is. But I want you to think about what that tedious thing is. Because when you encounter that, what we're going to say today is that's an opportunity for you to realize that all work can be Christian work, and all work can be done well, excellently, and can be done to honor God. I want to go to a scripture that I think will help illustrate some of this for us. It's the longer version of the passage that Eleanor read for us a little bit earlier in our worship service. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to read the first 10 verses together. And I did a sermon series a while back on the gospel plus, like the gospel plus work, the gospel plus life, the gospel plus just anything that you can orient yourself with. We identified a lot of scriptures in the Bible that just kind of sum up the Christian position together. We called them gospel summary passages. And it's just like, if you don't have any of the rest of the Bible, but you have this one section, then that's the story of Jesus and salvation that we can tell. And this one that we're about to hear together is one of those. It is beautiful description of life in Christ. I could read this and then stop talking because it would, it, it's so enriching and so fulfilling. I'm not going to do that, but um, I'm, I want to read this together. Let's just soak it up. Paul is writing to a young church, and he says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, a spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and its thoughts. 
like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Paints a pretty bleak picture of life before Christ. This is where you were. This is where you were stuck. This is you were chasing happiness and trying to be fulfilled, but you were coming up empty. You were crawling around in the darkness. That's where you were. And then you get a total turnaround. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgression. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved. I think he already said that. He's saying it again. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Isn't that good? Isn't that just good, good news? You get this, these gospel summary passages have a lot in common. Sometimes you'll hear Paul say the same thing in a different way. But the format that he uses here you'll find in other places in the New Testament. It's kind of like a bad news, good news situation. This is where you were. This is the life before Christ. But then the light came on. Think of the Wizard of Oz. It was black and white, and there was a twister. But then the door was opened, and everything is in color. Things changed because of Christ. Bad news, good news. It reminds me of when I was 16 years old. I had just turned 16, I had taken driver's ed, and I was ready to drive. I wanted to get my license. This is in the state of Washington, so I go down to the DMV. The medium version of the story is I fail the written test uh, because I'd studied and I'd taken driver's ed. I'm like, I know everything. I'm not going to study the manual in the book. Surely they're not going to ask about, like, what to do if a blind man approaches a crosswalk. Like, I'll figure it out. I failed the written test, and then I had to wait two weeks, and then I, um, I studied better the second time. Uh, I knew all the rules. I got 100% on the written part of the test, and they said, all right, now you do the road test. You sit in the car with an instructor. They drive you around, but they don't tell you how you're doing during the test. Um, and I knew that certain sections of the test did not go well. So I take the test. We drive around. He tells me to drive back to the DMV. He says, stop the car. Turn off the engine. I said, okay. Turn to the guy. How did I do? He takes his clipboard, and he says, you failed parallel parking. And I was, already, I was like, I kind of already know that. Like, it didn't go well. I knew I didn't even complete the maneuver. But he's like, you failed parallel parking. You get no points for that. I said, oh, that's not good news. And then he continues. The next thing he says was, you failed backing around a corner. I don't think they test you on that. I think that's illegal now. But, like, back in the day, you had to, if you were parallel parked and you wanted to back around a corner, <laughs> like, that was a maneuver you needed to master. I didn't master it. I completely uh, bricked it, and he said, you lost all points uh, for that particular section. And I was like, oh, this is bad news. And he goes, uh, and that's it. So your score is 92 out of 100, uh, so you get to go inside, and they'll give you your driver's license. And I went, well, that's great, but it's a little bit weird. I mean, as an adult, I hear that now, and I go, 
So you could do really bad on your tests, and like you'd be the worst parallel parker in the world. You're backing around a corner and just creating havoc in someone's neighborhood, and they're like, yeah, but you know what? You, you do, the rest is fine. Go ahead and drive. Like, here's your license. Go and do it. I go, that's kind of amazing. And I thought of that when I hear this passage because we're kind of saying the same thing. Like, you were lost. You were enemies of God. You were living for yourself, gratifying the sinful nature. You were, like, you failed a big portion of the test. Uh, but here's your license. Like, go. Go go live a life that's full and that, that God is involved in. It's like, wow. You're not deserving of this, but suddenly you have it. And that is good news in Christ. We hear that in this section. We also hear Paul say that we are God's handiwork. This is one of those verses people sew on pillows and repost on social media because it's so beautiful. We are God's handiwork. The craftsman, something that a craftsman makes. Some translations say we are God's masterpiece. The Greek word here is poema. That's where we get our English word poem. You are something that God did that is just beautiful and lovely and wonderful. That's who you are. You're God's handiwork created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Man, just knowing that we are God's craftsmanship, something that he made and is proud of and is, is beautiful and, and commendable. But there's a problem sometimes when we think about ourselves being the masterpiece of God or this beautiful, handcrafted creation. And, uh, well, I've never been to the Louvre in Paris. Anybody ever been there? Anybody ever been to a particular museum? Uh, there's a painting there by Leonardo da Vinci, and it's called the Mona Lisa. Nod your head if you've heard of the Mona Lisa. Um, turn to the person next to you and just repeat after me real quick. Uh, say, the Mona Lisa is a huge disappointment. Okay, uh, I'm sorry if you don't believe that. You don't have to stand behind that. I kind of tricked you into saying that. But here's what I've heard from people who go all the way to Paris, and they go, and they look at the Mona Lisa, they go, huh, this is maybe the most famous portrait in the entire world, one of the most famous artists. It's amazing that we still have it. It was preserved. And they go and they look at it, and they're like, kind of small. I thought it would be bigger. It's just kind of there on the wall. You know, you kind of have to lean in. The frame is like almost bigger than the, the painting itself. It's just some lady not really smiling all that big. Uh, it's this big deal uh, that people go and see, and they kind of walk away going, I mean, it's just a painting. There's lots of paintings. Be a long time to get here. There's paintings in San Francisco. There's paintings on my, my refrigerator. I could have looked at those and just gotten just as much satisfaction. Lisa and I, when we before we had kids, we did travel to ugh, somewhere else, Italy, Florence, I think. No, the Vatican. There, there it is. We went and saw the Sistine Chapel. That's another one of those like, wow, this took years to, to, to design and to, to paint. It was uh, amazing. And um, we went there. And it was so strict and so sterile. There was all these Vatican guards like telling you, like, put your camera away. Put your camera away. Stop it. Put your camera away. Sir, stop it. Shh, shh. There's signs that say, don't make any noise. Quiet, quiet. It's, I mean, it's way higher than this ceiling. So you're kinda, your neck hurts. You hold your jaw open like this so that you don't, like, just to make yourself a little more comfortable. And you're looking. You want to record it, but you're not allowed to. You want to take a picture of it. 
it's, it's far away. And, and my assessment of the Sistine Chapel is it's kind of far away, and it's a little bit of a disappointment. But it's a masterpiece. Here's, the, here's where I'm going with this. Sometimes we see ourselves as God's masterpiece, kind of like the Mona Lisa or the Sistine Chapel. Something God did, and it's on display, and it has this notoriety, and people can go and look at it if they want to, but it doesn't really do anything. You might disagree. You might be like, I love art, and we'll have some words, and that's fine. But see where I'm going with this. If we're the kind of masterpiece that hangs in a museum that's on the other side of the world that a lot of us will never see, then what is it doing? When I think about the masterpiece that we were created in Christ to be, created by God, God's handiwork, created in Christ to do, you remember what it said? To do what? To do good works. Okay. So we were designed, we were created, we were crafted, we were masterpieced for a reason. And it doesn't say created in Christ to hang on a wall, created in Christ to look real pretty, created in Christ to be something you can charge a lot to see. It says to do good works. Here's where this illustration might really lose you. Because when I see that we're God's handiwork, I think more of a smartphone. Okay. And I, I, I don't even like going here myself because I really don't want to praise the smartphone. I think it's, 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 a, it's a major problem uh, in society. And I'll talk more about that at other times. I'm sure you'll hear me on my soapbox. But go with me on this. This is kind of an amazing invention. It's kind of amazing that this is my flashlight and my phone and my appointment book and my how I write letters. It's my telephone. It's my calculator. It's my camera. It's my video camera. And on and on and on and on and on. It's my music player. It's how I, com it's how I commun communicate with people who live on the other side of the world. It's how I know I could find out in a second what it costs to go to the Vatican and see the big old Sistine Chapel. And you might go, yeah, but I mean, it's not a masterpiece in the way that the Mona Lisa is a masterpiece. I'm like, I don't know. Maybe it's a masterpiece in the way Paul says we are created in Christ. And you go like, but these are a dime a dozen. Well, not a dime a dozen. <laughs> like a lot a dozen. But everybody's got one. They're quite ordinary. I don't know why you would call this a masterpiece. It does good works, does it not? It is very, very practical. It is very, very functional. That's what I think we're called to be as God's masterpiece, is this amazing, like, revolutionary, world-changing thing that actually gets some work done. It gets the job done. It's not just for display. It's not a one-time thing. It's a common thing. But we're on mission together. That's kind of where I'm going with this. Now, okay, we talked about emails. We don't like sending emails and how work can feel unspiritual. But if we take this into account and we go, all right, we were created in Christ to do these good works, then we can do them anywhere. We can do them regardless of what our profession is, regardless of how Christian-y our profession feels, or how much we're discouraged from expressing our faith in Christ in the workplace. We can still do good works in the name of Jesus, like the masterpieces we were created to go and be. Speaking of Paris... Uh, 400 years ago, give or take uh, a few decades, there was a guy named uh, Lawrence. He, he was a monk in, uh, what do they call him, a monastery in Paris. 
he tried his hand at, um, you know, living the good life and becoming successful in the traditional way. Like he chased after money and he had a little bit of success and was kind of like, eh, came up empty. He did some military service and got blown up by a cannonball and like, oh, maybe this isn't where I should be going. He came to a, a deeper faith during this time of trying to figure out life. And so in his late 20s, Lawrence went to this monastery and said, all right, I want to be a monk. I just want to connect with God all day long. And he, uh, his name became Brother Lawrence. And he wrote this series of letters that were saved. He didn't write a book like, here's how to be a good monk. He just, people started seeing Christ's likeness in the way he lived his life in this monastery. And they started saying, can you like, tell us about how you do it? And he goes like, yeah, here's my philosophy. And there's this collection of his letters. It's called The Practice of the Presence of God. Uh, we call it the Potpog for short. That's his acronym, Practice of the Presence of God. One year at camp, we had uh, a group of high school students who were serving, like in the kitchen and in the maintenance roles uh, at, at a camp where there were students, and it was like, all right, you guys are going to be washing dishes. You guys are going to be cleaning up after people. You're going to be schlepping stuff around. So we had these gatherings where we sat and we listened to Brother Lawrence's philosophy on work and being in the presence of God while you're working. Brother Lawrence went into the monastery, and they said, you're going to work in the kitchen. And he said, okay, I, I guess I'll do that. Maybe he thought he would just be in his cell for eight hours a day praying. And they're like, nope, this thing's got to work. There's a lot of people here, so you're going to be scrubbing pots. You're going to be cooking meals. You're going to be in the heat. Uh, he was crippled in the war, and so like he had bad legs, and it was just, like not a good fit. But his attitude was, this tedious work that I have gives me the opportunity to bless others. It gives me the opportunity to be in the presence of God. I have this regular regimented thing that I do every day. And I just think about the Lord. And I think, I, I visualize Jesus there with me washing these dishes the way that Jesus washed his disciples' feet and laid down his life and was a servant. And it just gave him so much joy to scrub dishes. He served in the kitchen for 15 years. And then they finally changed his job. They're like, hey, we need you in a different part of the monastery. I don't know that I would call it a promotion. They moved him to the uh, sandal repair shop. So he, did, like, he was a cobbler for the rest of his time there. And his whole attitude was just like, I can joyfully labor for the Lord. This is not unspiritual. It's not even tedious. It's an opportunity for me to joyfully be in the presence of God. And I wonder if that can be our attitude about the things that we despise or the have-to parts of our day. I love this part of my job or my hobby or my, my, the, the relationship that I have with this person, but I don't like the drudgery. Maybe it's just a sh simple shift of mindset saying, hey, you know what? We are God's masterpiece created to do good works. Colossians 3.22, Paul's giving advice to different members of the household, parents, children, fathers, husbands and wives. And then he comes to this section. We don't have a whole lot of time to get into why this is a little bit sticky, but he tells uh, servants of the households, your masters are going to tell you what to do. That's your role. Uh, some of your masters are going to be kind. Some of them are going to be cruel. Here's, if you're in Christ, here's your attitude. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as though you're working for the Lord and not for these human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So maybe the commission for us is to be 
formed by what we do. Sometimes we think that spiritual formation happens in church on Sundays. And we certainly orient ourselves. I told you last week, this is sort of like our, our training gym to then go out and practice it in our homes, in our jobs, in the relationships that are, that are trickier than others. We go and we live out Christ. We prepare in here and then we go and we live it out. And it's out there that we're formed spiritually. Uh, Tish Harrison Warren, I'm going to do three quotes in a row where people that uh, choose their words and present them a lot better than I do. Uh, the author of this book said this, Christian holiness is not a free-floating goodness removed from the world. She says, it is, uh, it is specific and in some sense it is tailored to who we particularly are. We grow in holiness in the honing of our specific vocation. We can't be holy in the abstract. Instead, this is what happens. We become a holy blacksmith or a holy mother or a holy physician or a holy systems analyst. And you can replace anything that you do. Any of those tedious chores you don't like, you could become a holy version of someone who does that in the joy of the Lord. You can be a holy emailer. Martin Luther said, all work that helps people is God's work. And Tim Keller gives this illustration. He says, what, what's the best way to be a Christian pilot? Like, what does that even look like? If you're, if you're flying a plane and you're a Christian and you're like, oh man, how do, I, how do I represent Jesus in this job? Is it, do you like put it on autopilot and start handing out Bibles to the people in the, the seats? I mean, you could, I suppose, if a pilot was like, ah, it's, it's fine up there. I'd be like, why don't you... You should be up there flying the plane. And uh, I'll read this Bible a little bit later. But Tim Keller says the best way to be a Christian pilot is to land the plane. Do a good job. Get the people to their destination on time. Work at these things with all your heart. You are doing Christian ministry. That's pretty much all I've got to say. But I want to close with uh, an image a visualization, um, and then Jeff's going to come up here and share some, some prayer requests and then close us out with a, a benediction from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But the visualization is this. Think about someone you know in your life who has grown in faith and just exudes Christ-likeness. Think on the older side. I'm 42. Definitely don't think about me. Think about people that are older, longer in the tooth, I think, as they say, um, picture that spiritual mentor that you've encountered. It could be a relative. It could be someone in this congregation. Many of you are that for me. Just your faithfulness is something that I, I'm learning from. But, but picture that person. Have them in your mind. Now picture that person as a teenager working a job at a fast food counter. You go to get your Burger King. And that person is there, and they're greeting you, and they're serving you, and they're asking you what you want. Or take that person's lifelong faithfulness, the, the holiness that they have cultivated, and transfer it onto the face of an auto mechanic that you meet. Somebody, you're, you don't know what's going on in your car. You're trusting them to tell you the truth, to give you a fair price, and just picture how joyfully they serve you, and they love you, and they take care of you, and they put any concerns that you have to rest. Isn't that the kind of world you want to live in? Where the people of God are everywhere. They're out in public and they're doing 
to work. And they're sending the emails, and they're flying the planes, and they're flipping the burgers, and they're teaching in our schools, and just every, everything that you mentioned and everywhere in between. And they're bringing glory to God by being faithful and doing their jobs well with joy. Um, that's the inspiration for us today. And that's our calling, I think. And so hopefully the next time you run into one of those like, oh, those chores, those have-to things, think about Brother Lawrence. Think about Tim Keller saying, just land the plane faithfully, do the job well, uh, God is glorified. Let me close in prayer, and then I'll sit down. Lord, we ask you to make us holy through trying moments, through tedious tasks, through uh, navigating relationships faithfully. Lord, we believe that you are forming us in here, but we need to remind ourselves you are forming us outside of this room. You are forming us in our homes, in our cars, in our workplaces, in our tasks. Help us to see ourselves as your workmanship, your handiwork, a masterpiece created with a purpose. Thank you for your great love. We thank you for Jesus. And I pray all this in his name. Amen.